0: On this vote, the yeas are 52, the nays are 48. The nomination of Amy Coney Barrett of Indiana to be an
1: Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States is confirmed.
0: U.S. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has died. Judge Amy Coney Barrett. If Joe Biden wins, Democrats can sack the courts.
1: You're lying dog face, pony sword. Maybe that's a question you should ask China. Anyway, my time's up. I'm not thinking, Mr. That's President. okay. I'm
2: I know thinking. you're not thinking. You never do.
1: It's a whole hoax. And you know who's playing into the hoax? People like you and the fake news
2: media. We are born free and we will stay free. A massive show we've got here for you today. Unbelievable. Amy Coney Barrett is a Supreme Court justice. We Finally. One week from Election Day, and folks, we have Senator Tom Cotton getting ruthless today.
0: That's, that's a hell of a lineup we got. Um, what a night to start with. You know, Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett. You know, I know Merrick is, Merrick is looking down upon us right now, smiling and overjoyed that Amy Coney Barrett has been confirmed. What Sm- a night.
2: Can we talk just a minute about the prophecy that you foretold in October of 2018 when you told I, all of the minions that this would happen?
0: I remember I told them, I said, you know, October of 2020, Cocaine Mitch will place RBG with Amy Coney Barrett, and there's not a goddamn thing the libs can do about it. And <laughs> what happened? cocaine mitch delivered yet well, again
2: well cocaine mitch does deliver yet again and this one is a big one um i mean t- to be honest with you we all watch the hearings we all watch her performance we know what kind of a justice she's going to be it is going to be mm-hmm. a massive difference on the supreme court uh you know yeah like, you know it's three but but i don't know about that it's- finally
0: conservatives have a five four majority <laughs> it's a good day it's a great day
2: and you know now we can proceed to rig the election and take everybody's health care away freely in a maternalistic finally dignity.
0: No more meddling from John Roberts. It's time to take <laughs> health care away from people. That's what we've been after this whole time. You know?
2: in, in, in total seriousness, it is a generational accomplishment that we witnessed last night. there is huge huge Nobody who could have predicted uh, the shift. If you look at you know basically where we were at the end of the Obama term with Merrick Garland being nominated we were on the PC precipice upon him. Yeah, <laughs> upon him we were on the precipice of a 5-4 liberal majority on that court yeah. and 4 years later we are looking at you know 6-3 or you know with Roberts it's you know it could be 5-4 <laughs> but anyway it is a, a decisive shift in our direction
0: and you know what a triumph what accomplishment by president trump and by Cocaine Mitch, I mean, this is, you know, this is the last defense against the lunacy of the left. It's America's insurance policy for the Biden rioters. And who knows what happens, you know, if, if Biden finds a way to rig the election and win this thing and he tries to pass some kind of crazy Green New Deal, ban all guns, you know, God bless Cocaine Mitch. He's, he's, he's held the line for us right there.
2: He he really has. And I think all Republican senators deserve an awful lot of credit for totally. staying in this thing. You know, I mean, look, the outside story that nobody really knows is this nomination came up at the end of September. And when it did, there was an awful lot of travel and COVID uh Interplay, yeah. we know about the super yeah. spreader event in the South <laughs> Lawn, You know, where, where three Republican senators ended up getting COVID. So, I mean, the challenge of trying to keep not only everybody on board in terms of where the votes are, because they had no margin to spare. Remember, Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins dealt themselves out before the proceedings began on the motion to proceed to this nomination. So they were literally at the number. Mm-hmm. And, and so if you lose anyone, I mean, if somebody gets sick, if somebody does uh you know anything to themselves if they get lost on the way to the senate i mean you don't get a supreme court nominee and they had to hold that together for six weeks
0: and another it's a huge amount of credit to the senators who are in cycle you know you've got cory in colorado who held the line you know that's that's courage under fire right there did not did not back down to the crazy left
2: that guy deserves a ton of credit. He came out right away. You know, he's made himself very clear on where he stands with these issues. He stands with all of us. And, uh, and I, I agree him, Martha McSally, Tom Tillis, Joni Ernst, you know, all of those folks, David Perdue, all of them just rock solid.
0: Yeah. So huge shout out Senator Cory Gardner. Let's get him right back in the Senate. We need him.
2: Um, Absolutely. There's one thing that I noticed, um, And this is just, it's becoming unbelievable. I I can't tell you how much it pisses me off. Last night during this momentous occasion in the South Lawn where the president and Justice Thomas is swearing in Amy Coney Barrett, like, you know, a a significant news event. CNN and MSNBC did not take it.
0: It's insane. It's insane. Uh, That's that's what we've been saying is, you know, the mainstream fake news media will not give you the information you need, you have to subscribe to Ruthless. You have to get all your friends to subscribe to Ruthless because you will actually get the news here. You'll get the information here. You'll get the analysis here.
2: And it's even more than that. Like the reckoning is coming. The reckoning is coming. This will not be settled on election day. This revolution is just being, what Trump has showed us in these four years is that it doesn't matter if you're Donald Trump or you're Mitt Romney or you're, you know, some other milk toast Republican, they're going to say the same damn thing about you.
0: Yeah. Every, you know, every Republican is always Hitler. It's the worst thing possible. And the, the, the media is totally in the bag for the Dems. They're doing everything they can to elect Biden. They are, they are involved in straight up election interference right now.
2: Oh, I, we want to get to that because we've, I know you've got some special thoughts on oh, what's yeah. going on with I, that. But i got there, a lot
0: of thoughts on that.
2: Before we get to that, I've got two quotes that I want to pull and, and, and discuss. The first is what McConnell says last night in his closing speech after hearing Democrats talk about how this was an illegitimate process and illegitimate justice. He says, quote, legitimacy does not flow from their feelings, unquote. What a
0: mic drop. take that cocaine mitch does not give an f about your feelings does not care cry more
2: it's just so good and then and then also in a quote of of terrible lack of self-awareness senator schumer says uh that as a result of amy coney barrett quote generations of unborn will suffer unquote
0: yeah i mean well the the consequences they'll get to be born so congratulations yeah. to them. Thank you, ACB. We reached for
2: comment. The unborn disagreed with that.
0: <laughs> I mean, it's it was it's it's a huge celebration. It's a huge accomplishment. We're going from the John Roberts court to the Clarence Thomas court. You know, we we are finally in a place where we're going to be safe from activist judges, you know, legislating from the bench. God bless Trump. God bless Cocaine Mish for pulling this off.
2: Totally. And the, and the politics of this look, if the politics of recent history are politics for the next week, Republicans, I think, probably have a little wind at their back.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, funnily, I think there's going to be some Dems who are going to end up paying the price um, for voting no. Like you've got Doug Jones in Alabama, you know, last time that race had a minor issue in it. Now voting <laughs> against uh, ACB is a major issue in the race. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> got to worry about that. The sly.
2: Roy Moore reference
0: and you know last thing I, I got to give a lot more credit for cocaine Mitch because right after the confirmation he moves to confirm more judges just like <laughs> it doesn't gonna, stop the night's not over for you dams you're gonna sit here and you're gonna watch we're lining up more judges it You does better not pack
2: stop. a lunch Cocaine Mitch <laughs> has got another another haul for you
0: <laughs> one night um now let's, uh, let's uh, transition to the election in general. Josh, you know, it's, it's pretty obvious to me, at least, that Trump's going to win 538 electoral votes. But, <laughs> you know, just in case some folks still believe what CNN's polls are saying, uh, Josh, why don't you tell us what the most plausible path forward is for President Trump?
2: Yeah, look, I mean, first of all, if President Trump wins, the polling industry is going to be broken forever, right? Totally. We're we're going to be done with that, and they're going to have to find new ways to sample public opinion. And I I think that's possible. I mean, look, the president has had a great 10-day run. Not a good one, a great one. Probably the best one that he's had, you know, since impeachment, and that was shoved back down the throat of Nancy Pelosi. I mean, this this has been a really, really solid bunch of news days for him.
0: Just Grand Slam after Grand Slam, you know, that debate performance- Um, the polls are just, I mean,
2: even the CNN polls are starting to look really, really good. Yeah. I mean, so, so the bottom line is his pathway requires Florida and it requires North Carolina again, but both are very plausible, even in, in, you know, the polling averages, which are, are not incredibly favorable. He's right there in both of those states. And I think we saw some early vote numbers come back in Florida where they're basically even Republicans and Democrats. And, I, you know, Democrats needed a pretty significant advantage in early voting in order to be comfortable in Florida. So, I, you know, I'm, I feel pretty good about the president's ability to carry there. But after you get to those two states, you got to have some different combination of, of um, other Midwestern states. And assuming you carry everything that you previously carried out West, which is like Arizona is the big one. If he wins Pennsylvania, this sucker's over. Yeah. That's the one right? I'm watching. It, it's over. And you saw I mean, that's why he was there for three stops yesterday. That's yeah. why he's just non-stop.
0: Away. I mean, that yeah. guy, he's like the energizer bunny. It's like campaign stop, campaign stop, campaign stop, just all over Pennsylvania, full energy and then takes it
2: back to the South long for Amy Coney Barrett. I mean, it's incredible. He's got just his, another yeah. day. Just another day. The Regeneron is uh, added a little uh, little extra. The Regen-
0: Regeneron lives loudly within him.
2: <laughs> so, But, you know, look, it, it doesn't have to be just Pennsylvania. I think that's the easiest pathway. But, you could, I mean, Michigan get, gets you there, too, assuming you're holding everything and, and including Iowa. Um, if you don't have Michigan or Pennsylvania, it gets trickier. Right. You've got to have combinations of Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa. Got to hold on to Arizona. You can still get there. You got to pick off a, 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 a one of those congressional seats in uh, Maine and Nebraska. You got to make sure you, you lock that one down. So there, there are a number of ways for the president to get home here, but the most important and easiest one is through Michigan or Pennsylvania.
0: And in Nevada it's, is Nevada must win there.
2: Yeah, you know, Nevada is actually really interesting because, I mean, look, the, the Democrats have figured out how to try to rig everything when it pertains to the election in Nevada. And it's just been insane what they've done with mail-out ballots and everything else. But but there's also a little change to the electorate. Obviously, the service industry has changed quite a bit during COVID, and people have sort of scattered a little bit. So there's a lot of question about what the the – actual makeup of the electorate looks like. And, and also,
0: you know, when we saw it during uh, the primaries, you know, Ralston Soleimani no longer has that iron grip to activate culinary that he once <laughs> did. Culinary. That could be a game changer, you know. Ralston culinary, Soleimani doesn't activate culinary. Who knows what happens there?
2: Who knows what happens if the culinary is not there? So, <laughs> so yeah. So you look at at some of this um, stuff and you can see multiple pathways to victory. The, the one really interesting part that I've found completely at odds with what we hear from the mainstream media is this the, coming into this the idea that we're going to have this sort of record uh, number of ballots cast by mail, right? I mm-hmm. mean, just everybody was talking about how Republicans are going to be overwhelmed with Democrats' mail-in voting far before Election Day. And no question, there's been a lot of mail-in by by votes, and there is certainly a Democratic advantage. But yesterday, here's yesterday's totals as, as uh, given to us by the Associated Press. 58.6 million ballots were cast so far early vote and vote by mail. Okay, so how does that compare to 2016? In 2016, we had 58 million votes cast. Interesting. What? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I thought the pandemic changed everything, smug.
0: You know, here's my thing is, you know, wh- whoever's out there doing the voter suppression, they're doing an awful job. You know, we hear there's a lot of voter
2: suppression going on. Uh, <laughs> I don't see it, but hey, who knows? I did, I did. They're wrapping themselves into pretzels to try to figure out how to explain that. But but it is really interesting to note that although there will be more ballots cast early and by mail, as of right now, it's exactly the same as it was in 2016. And you know the emphasis that Democrats have put on voting by mail and the mainstream media has told us we have to vote by mail. And remember the September blow up with every Democrat in Congress trying to convince us that Mike Duncan was somehow rigging this election with mailboxes?
0: That was completely insane. We had a congressman chain himself to a USPS <laughs> postal box. That's complete madness. Like, where do they come up with this Looney Tune stuff?
2: I mean, we have dealt with so much madness over the last few years. It is, I don't even know where to begin, but that one was clearly, clearly ridiculous. And I, I think, look, bottom line is the president can win this race he's got multiple paths to victory and i I think he's not been overwhelmed at all by early voting we're you know we're just going to see how this goes i know we want to do a full recap of the senate on thursday
0: yeah definitely going to have to go over that map too
2: yeah, so so we'll leave that we'll leave that there. I, I know the last part of this that we referenced at the beginning that you want to get into, Smudge. Absolutely, we've got a couple of theories of the case here on the closing arguments and yeah. what's happening to our news media.
0: Huge. So everyone knows that the media is completely crooked. They're doing the bidding of the Biden campaign, and they're you know they they're completely hiding the truth from the public, especially on this Hunter Biden thing, and two people specifically. I need to call out and that's John Brennan and uh, clapper who've been giving cover to the left wing media to sweep everything and having to do with Hunter under the rug. You know, they'll, they'll, they're giving these quotes out and they're very careful how they say it. They say, Oh, you know, this laptop has the hallmarks quote, totally. hallmarks of Russian disinformation. You know, it's like saying, you know, many people are saying or sources say no, <laughs> you know, there's no basis in fact. This is, you know, they're just completely pulling this out of the air. It's hallmarks of Russian disinformation. So what happens is now you have every media organization running out there and saying, oh, it's Russian disinformation. Total Russian disinformation. You know.
2: Incredible. Incredible. And and, And we're talking about the disinformation. Are you talking about the sex tape?
0: Wow. Um, I don't, can we even, I don't, we're going to move on.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Come on. I feel like we got to just at least... (laughs) Knowledge there was feet involved. Oh my God. No, there goes our Apple
0: iTunes rating right there. It's gone. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing with, with Brennan and Clappers they have no choice. You know, Trump wins, they're in jail. Biden wins, they're in the cabinet. So, <laughs> what do you think they're going to do? You know, these
2: crooks. So, <laughs> I mean, look, I, the other piece of this, and I think you correctly hit this, that they are actually the cover for hiding all of this information yep. that has come out. But, but I look at this also from the other side, which is if you're Joe Biden and you believe that it is Russian disinformation that has surfaced that is unfairly linking your son to not only very crooked business deals in China and in Russia, but also a sex tape where he's smoking crack. Yes. I like mean, Wouldn't you want to get to the bottom of that? I mean, that's the thing is. So if
0: Joe Biden and the Dems are so concerned, this is Russian disinformation, why doesn't Biden promise to appoint a special counsel to investigate all of this if he's elected? You know, you get, you get special counsel, they're removed from the political process. And, you know, as, just like you're saying, as the media told us for three years, this material, that tape, this could be compromise, you know, for the president. Oh my God, you know? I
2: mean, that's what they, if it is compromise,
0: Right? We not totally. want to get to the bottom of that? Totally. You know, I mean, MSNBC is still looking for a smoking gun in Prague while Hunter Biden is smoking crack in Kazakhstan. Like, <laughs> let's be serious. This is ridiculous. Ridiculous.
2: Think, I've got an idea, Smug. I think Merrick Garland should lead the investigation.
0: Totally. Peace be upon him. Appoint I, Merrick from beyond. <laughs> he can watch, watch over us as the special counsel. I, I, I fully support this. I feel like that—that that is the way to go.
2: Uh, folks, look—we this is this has been incredibly fun, but we've got a really important interview. And huge. We want to get straight to it. This is this guy has been a, a a big big part of our success over the last few years from the conservative side, and I can't wait to interview Senator Tom Cotton.
0: And you know, also you got to mention he's the new owner of the New York Times. So you got you know, be sure to congratulate him on that. Yeah, um, I, will. I will. Without further ado, let's get right into that interview.
2: Well, we are super excited here today because we've got our first guest on the Ruthless podcast, none other than the world-renowned senator from Arkansas, Mr. Tom Cotton.
1: Thanks, you, Josh. It's, thanks, Josh. It's good to be on with
2: you. Oh, my gosh. what We're in the biggest of times. We're one week separated here from the election your own name on the ballot down in Arkansas. Uh, We also have what was an incredibly momentous occasion in the United States Senate yesterday with the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett. What are your thoughts on that, Senator Cotton?
1: Well, I think it was a great day uh, for the country and for the Constitution. Uh, I mean, I think most Americans loved what they saw about Judge Barrett at her confirmation hearing. And that's one reason why you saw a clear majority of Americans supported her confirmation. So I commend the president, Um, for nominating her, and uh, Mitch McConnell uh, for helping shepherd her through the Senate and holding our majority together. Uh, And then most importantly, I commend Judge Barrett, now Justice Barrett, for, um, you know, handling herself masterfully in front of the Judiciary Committee and the life she's lived and the long and distinguished career that she's no doubt going to have on the Supreme
2: Court. Were you surprised at all that Senate Democrats were were able to sort of stay away from the level of prosecution against her religious views that they were so insistent on in her appellate court hearings. They, they basically tried to make this a, a referendum on Obamacare rather than discuss what they really wanted to discuss, it, it appeared, which was her, her Catholic faith.
1: Yeah, you know, they, the Democrats on the committee hinted around at criticisms right. of her, her faith. Uh, and proxies on the left did not hint around at it. They just openly attacked her. It kind of Reminded me a little bit of uh, back in the fall of 2007 when uh, David Petraeus came to testify and the Democrats were expressing skepticism of the success of the surge in Iraq and MoveOn.org just went full Leroy Jenkins (laughs) and went called him General Petraeus in a full-page ad in the Washington Post. So I do think there was some coordination on the left. The Senate Democrats on the committee would not openly attack her faith the way they did last time, while their proxies and surrogates on the left would. But obviously, uh, she came off in an incredibly appealing and dignified, graceful way, uh, in addition to the brilliance and the deep erudition she showed about the law in that committee hearing. So it's no surprise to me again, that the polls showed that the American people wanted her confirmed and the Democrats knew they were playing a pretty weak hand, um, both with public opinion and also on how solidly unified the Republicans were, um, you know, within just a few days of Judge Ginsburg's passing.
2: But that, you know, one of the things I think that is underrated about this process is basically you had six weeks to try to keep everybody healthy and everybody in attendance, uh, which is, you know, everybody kind of looked past that, but that's no small feat when you're at the end of an election, everybody's traveling, trying to do what they can do on the ground and then coming back and and talk a little bit about how difficult it was to make sure that you had 51 votes at the end of the day. Yeah, well...
1: Yeah, there was that time uh, maybe three weeks ago uh, after uh, several senators had contracted the coronavirus or been exposed to someone who had. Unfortunately, those were all pretty mild cases and then were hospitalized, and everyone was back on their feet within the requisite time period. Um, but yeah, I mean, we certainly all uh, you know, we had to do our part to stay together, both politically and medically. Um, I feel like I probably travel more these days than almost any person in America as I'm going around the country campaigning. For my fellow senators and going back and forth between Arkansas and Washington, but you know, it's really it's just a matter of exercising normal precautions. Um, you know, trying to keep your distance where you can, wearing a mask and practicing good hygiene, and being aware of your surroundings where you can, like on an airplane. And uh, you know, we were able to able to all stick together uh, both politically and medically, as you say.
2: Yeah, well, huge huge accomplishment in the country. Thanks you for for all of that. You know, one thing I wanted to get into with you, Senator, is unlike an awful lot of uh, politicians, you actually have an interesting life. Um, (laughs) And, and one thing that I didn't know, and I was looking back to sort of your entryway into the public forum. And what I came across was a letter that you had wrote to the New York times after they published classified information dealing with terrorist financing. And at the time, you were on the front lines and they decided to ignore it, but there were some conservative blogs that picked it up and uh, brought it to light. And I it seemed to me like that was sort of your entryway into the, into the public. Yeah,
1: yeah. Maybe you can say that Josh. So yeah, it goes back to the summer of 2006. It so really, the backstory goes back to December of 2005. Um, I had been uh, in Ranger school for about six weeks at that point, totally cut off from the outside world. And we had one weekend um, where we got to kind of decompress and read the news and sleep in. So we wouldn't be a danger to ourselves or others on the road as we drove home for the Christmas holiday. And the first news story I read that December of 2005 was the New York Times disclosing the highly classified, highly successful terrorist surveillance program. And I was just appalled at that. And if you fast forward six months later, and when I was in Iraq in 2006, the New York Times did it again, they disclosed uh, something Uh, known as the uh, SWIFT program, an international finance consortium that helps settle payments and transactions across uh, international borders, and how we were using the SWIFT program to help track terrorist financing. And and by the New York Times' own reporting, it was fully briefed to the relevant intelligence committees in Congress. They supported it. Our allies in Western Europe supported it, which in those days was pretty uncommon in anything related to the war on terrorism, that the New York Times decided that it was the arbiter of what should and should not be public about our Classified intelligence program. So, I found myself uh, in our big base in Iraq uh, for about 36 hours. Uh, that period of time, we were doing 96-hour long long-range patrols out of a small little patrol base uh, near the river, and we would come back to the big base, get the chance to you know take a hot shower and some hot food, and wash your clothes, we you head back out. And I uh, I read that story and I fired off what I guess you could say was an intemperate email, <laughs> suggesting that uh, the people responsible for publishing this information uh, should be prosecuted to the full extent of the law and then i left for another 96 hours where i was totally cut off from communication let's just say when i got back it had gone off like something of a bomb on the internet <laughs> <laughs> i had a young private come running up to my humvee and said sir you got to get inside the commander he wants to see you right now oh you're thinking so like did you he said he said said did you write a an op-ed in the new york times i said no sir i wrote a i wrote a letter to the editor which i i knew i was you know within my rights to do you know in your one hour of military law training as an infantry lieutenant you get told about what you can and can't do in terms of public political civic participation so i had to go up to the uh, battalion headquarters to meet the battalion commander and i was very worried at this point that uh, you know i might actually lose my platoon just you know a month or two after having it and after having waited all those years to get to where i was uh, fortunately he was up in the green zone that night so i had the long sleepless night uh dozed off finally woke up had an email in my uh, Army inbox from a Colonel at the Pentagon, and all it said was, uh, hey LT, I thought you might like to see the message below. And he had forwarded a message from uh, Pete Schoemaker, who at the time was the Chief of Staff of the Army, the Senior General of the Army, and the distribution list was something like, all Army Generals and Colonels. And General Schoemaker had had linked to my letter and said, uh, these are wise words about operational and information security from one of our brave lieutenants on the front line disseminate out to the lowest level oh my
2: gosh <laughs> and you're you're just like that you're off the hook
1: so i saw my battalion commander later that day and he kind of said come over here <laughs> and uh he said tom uh i saw your letter uh he said did you see the uh the chief's note about it And i said i did sir and he said you know yesterday i was supposed to chew your ass out right and i said yes sir <laughs> i uh i heard that he said you know, today I'm supposed to punch you on the shoulder and tell you attaboy, go get them, right? <laughs> and I said, uh, I wasn't sure, but I was hoping it'd be something like that, sir. And so I'll tell you what, learn, this is your lesson Learn from this, Tom. You uh, Didn't do anything wrong. I would never, uh, myself or allow one of my other commanders to do anything to suppress the rights of my soldiers. But maybe in the future when you exercise your rights, you should tell your chain of command that you're going to do so. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, oh, wow. sir. I will not be exercising my rights anymore. Oh. You know, it was, it, one funny, one funny side note on that is, um, I, you know, this all happened again while I was, you know, out on that ninety-six hour patrol. Is a lot on the left? Uh, probably some left-wing commentator still with us and trolling uh, on the internet today uh, said that I was a fiction. I was made up. Um, apparently, I didn't know this until the time Tom Cotton is a minor character in the Lord of the Rings. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> they said they took this, this name of a, of a character from Lord of the Rings and some guy who, you know, was a lawyer who gave it all up to uh, go be a infantry officer and join the uh, fight in Iraq. This is all just part of the Bush war machine propaganda. Effort. Incredible.
2: So you had a lot, of, uh, a
1: lot of classmates and friends that were writing. In fact, one of them, Peter Berkowitz, had been a professor of mine in college. He's now the director of policy planning at the State Department. Uh, so they were all riding in to assure everyone that I, in fact, existed. Um, so uh, wow! No, I, didn't well, expect, I didn't expect to go to Iraq and have
2: an existential crisis. I mean, just unbelievable. You know, I, I'm glad you clarified the uh, Lord of the Rings characters. I'm, I'm positive that there's nobody that's listening to Ruthless that it was familiar with that uh, Tom <laughs> character anyway. So I wasn't but, either. <laughs> I appreciate that. That is an amazing story. Um, but but continuing in the interesting life of Tom Cotton, I think we've all read about your birthday cakes. That you do you, you still do that?
1: Not as much. My wife uh, makes a lot more desserts for our boys now, so we've moved on to uh, pound cakes and pumpkin pie. <laughs> Although I got to tell you, when you see it, when you see a, a nice, you know, fresh sheet cake. Uh, at Walmart or Kroger or something. It's, it's hard to resist because that's, you know, my wife and I actually both love the birthday cakes. And the first time, you know, maybe two or three weeks into dating, we actually, we're going to the grocery store because we're going to cook dinner together. And uh, we were in the bakery, like picking up, you know, bread or something. And I saw birthday cake and I, I thought I would reveal this about myself, see how she responded. And I said, you know, sometimes, Anna, I just buy a cake like that on no particular day just to eat it for dessert. And she looked at me with these wide eyes and said, are you serious? I said,
2: yeah. And she said, I do that too. Oh, my a match made in heaven. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> for those of you who don't, don't know, Senator Cotton had made it a, a tradition in his life to at least once a week buy a sheet cake. You know, when you go into the grocery store and they have all the leftover cakes, they're sitting there, you wonder, like, did nobody order them? They just make these things up. Well, the consumer for that, and which we all wondered who that might be, it's Tom Cotton and his wife, evidently. <laughs> yeah, who, I mean, but who wouldn't, I mean, who doesn't like birthday cake? Like when you
1: have birthday cake at the office, back when people would go to the office, who didn't take a break from the break room? So why wouldn't you just buy it? Eat it? I don't understand. It's a very- wife, yeah, watched her pound cakes and her pumpkin pies are really extraordinary,
2: even better than sheet cake from Walmart. Well, you've you've upped your dessert game, no question. One thing I know that both you and your wife are super into is Christmas. <laughs> uh, And I don't mean just like sort of, you observe Christmas because, you know, Christians observe Christmas. I mean, you're really into Christmas. I mean, you might be, you might be the world's foremost expert on the Christmas rollout. Oh, yeah.
1: Um, I know it's still just late October. And, you know, according to the ways of our fathers, we would wait until Black Friday to start to decorate and celebrate for Christmas. But seriously, the, with the threats posed day in the war on Christmas, I don't think we can let our enemies get the jump on us. we have to move preemptively to start decorating
2: and celebrating now if we want to win the war on Christmas. Well, it's a war that's been waged for quite some time, (laughs) as you know. And and in this particular case, uh, you on the front lines of it, I'm hoping that maybe you can give listeners just a little bit of etiquette when it comes to like, when do we start listening to Christmas carols? When do we start, (laughs) you know, when's the tree go up? You know, but it seems like there's holiday creep everywhere. I think this year, like
1: Dunkin' Donuts and starbucks were rolling out pumpkin spice drinks like in mid-august god bless them. Um, yeah you know here we are at, like i guess like i said the last week of october if you've been to walmart lately you know they already have trees up and decorations uh, alongside their halloween costumes and of course uh countdown to christmas on ha- on hallmark channel has already begun now my wife my wife draws a firm line um she in between you know her work um and being a great mom she's also does as you might imagine most of the tasteful decorating in the house and she is a traditionalist Halloween until October 31st and on November 1 it all comes down and the fall theme Thanksgiving comes up but on Thanksgiving night once the boys are asleep all that comes down and the Christmas trees and the decorations start going up.
2: Do do you sneak in a little bit of the Hallmark Channel early in November? Do you give it just a little preview? Um, On
1: occasion I do yeah you know my my wife says that uh, you can only watch it for about seven minutes uh, before you've seen everything because they get, you can only go like three seconds without you know a shot of Christmas decorations. as you know your your fellow podcaster, who I'm sure you're about to overtake and reach, despite his vast reach, Tony Kornheiser calls uh, the Hallmark Countdown to Christmas Christmas flavored novocaine for the mind. <laughs> so, you know, if you want to turn off the shout fests on uh, on cable news, uh, you can always just flip over Hallmark, which I would point out by the way has like. Several, several times the viewership of old repeat Christmas movies that CNN's original program has at any given time. <laughs> well, it's, look at the ratings. Hall, Hallmark Christmas totally
2: destroys almost every other channel in ratings. I mean for good reason it's just quality content right <laughs> it's a it's a big city guy who's down on his luck meets a gal in a small town and you know they get together and boy oh boy there's your Hallmark
1: Christmas they sa- they save the bakery they save the ben breakfast they save the traditional Christmas parade <laughs> after overcoming the smallest Most easily surmountable obstacle to their relationship ever met by any two people.
2: (laughs) It is a match made in heaven. I mean, first of all, that cookie cutter gets plowed through. I mean, every single movie, basically the same thing, but they're all gold in my mind. I I remember the Wall Street Journal had a story.
1: It written several stories about the phenomenon. Because from a marketing standpoint, Countdown Christmas really is a phenomenon uh, that Hallmark has created. But uh, it had like their director of content a few years ago uh, writing about how many people send in uh, uh, screenplays for Countdown to Christmas movies. And that every year they end up, you know, some of them, I mean, they do 40 of these movies a year, like I mean, filming it year round. Um, so every, every year, uh, at least some of them you know, got their genesis from a viewer screenplay. But he said also every year, uh, someone sends in a screenplay that is along the following lines um, It was, you know, in the snowiest town in America it was a Christmas without snow. (laughs) And his response to that was, nope, not on the Hallmark Channel, there is no Christmas without snow here.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's right, that's right. (laughs) Well, look, I mean, we're all hoping for the best next Tuesday. Uh, If for some horrible reason, Republicans come up short and Democrats get their hands on power, we're counting on you for the defense of Christmas. And we're looking at the defensive Christmas Act, which I believe uh, the minions uh, here will help you write <laughs> and make sure that we've covered all of our bases. That sounds like a deal? As long as we can keep saying Merry Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be line one. <laughs> all right. So, Senator, we've got three questions that we're asking absolutely everybody. And uh, it starts with your last meal on Earth. What, was, what would that be?
1: Oh, I'm a pretty meat and potatoes guy on this, though. So uh, I'd probably go just a good steak, maybe a good baked potato, um, maybe, of course, topped off with some birthday cake.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) For dessert. (laughs) Uh, Second question if you weren't in politics, what would you be?
1: I would still be in the Army. Um, Yeah, it was a a tough choice for me to leave the Army when I did. I started, uh, as I mentioned earlier, later in life. Uh, I don't think I got in the Army until I was 27, almost 28. So after spending almost five years in the army, I was 33, um, and closer to 33, and uh, you know I just decided if I, if I wanted to spend 20, if I wanted to spend, go take my next step, which would have been a, anywhere from a two to five year commitment, I, I probably would have wanted to commit to 20 years at that age. I wasn't ready to quite do that, um, but you know if I had joined as a younger man, if I had joined you know straight out of high school, straight out of college, as people typically do, um, I might have made a career out of that.
2: Yeah, yeah. Finally, number three: What motivates Tom Cotton more—the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat? The thrill of victory,
1: uh, because we have had a lot of great thrills uh, in recent years. But of course, the agony of defeat is something to be avoided at all possible costs. Uh, you know, if it, if anybody watched the uh, ten-part Michael Jordan documentary uh, that ESPN ran back in the spring at the height of the pandemics and. The lockdowns, uh, I thought it captured very well uh, just how bad he hated to lose and how far he would go to work and to train uh, to avoid losing. Um, so although the thrill of victory is great, you always want to avoid the agony of defeat.
2: Absolutely. No, that's that's a great Michael Jordan embodied the hatred of defeat. <laughs> no question about it. Well, we're all going to hate defeat uh, and we're all going to work towards victory next Tuesday. Senator Cotton, uh, nobody, and I mean this sincerely, nobody does more for his colleagues or the Republican Party traveling the country, campaigning for folks, trying to make sure that we secure our majority and reelect President Trump than you do. So on behalf of all of our Ruthless listeners, I just want to thank you for everything.
1: Thank you, Josh. I appreciate it. It's good to be on with you.
2: You bet.